0: Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights and also this week with our special guest, Christian Gustafsson. And this week we're discussing learning from history. Could you uh, introduce us to our, uh, well, I was going to say our new friend, my new friend, Christian. Tell us about Christian.
1: Yeah, I've known Christian for many years. I guess we probably met about 10 years ago when I started running futures and analytical methods in uh, in defense intelligence. And um, Christian is uh, of interest, he was of interest uh, for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, because he's an excellent all-rounder. He well, he, can, he knows a lot about all kinds of different things. Good. Um, but all, so, but secondly, because he's an academic who happens to work in uh, an intelligence-related field, so uh, it was a useful person to talk to on you know the academic side, uh, and and we you know we did a few sort of workshops and talks and things together. Uh, but then he, he also happens to be a practicing intelligence analyst himself, and uh, he, he I'm sure will tell you a bit more about that, um, and and has worked in various bits of the government, sort of as a, you know it sometimes interleaving being being uh, being a, being a, a an intelligence analyst and being an academic um so yeah and, and we've stayed in touch all that time and whenever we get together something interesting happens and and one of the things that he uh, knows a hell of a lot about that i know virtually nothing about is um is military history and he's always got some interesting examples of things that are like a situation today that happened in you know the time of alexander the great and 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 i think one of the things that i'm interested in is you know actually how how useful is that information for policymakers Should they be paying more or less attention to him so that 's why we've got him on the podcast.
0: Nice introduction. Um, I was wondering where the history bit um, was um, but you you 've explained but Christian, perhaps you can tell us fill in the gaps a bit, tell us a bit more about yourself, your background where you're from, yeah, sure. you 're from what you do et etc. yeah, not the first time i 've been described um, publicly as a person of interest, although in general <laughs> another, another
2: context uh, so yeah um I was originally an army officer in the Canadian army and after spending a few years doing that I decided that uh, going to Bosnia every uh, six months for six months didn't sound like a good way to spend the rest of my life. This was right before September 11th. Uh, So I got out of the army, uh, did my PhD at Cambridge uh, and found myself teaching first at Sandhurst and then now uh, at Brunel University where I helped run the um, MA in intelligence and security studies.
0: What was your PhD in?
2: PhD was about CIA operations in Chile in the 1960s and 1970s. So I started, and that's really a nice segue, because I started looking at how intelligence operations were uh, run based on, or how how covert operations were run based on the intelligence that the CIA was gathering in the country. So the link between what they were Uh, understanding and then what they were trying to do about it and really the the book that came out of this uh, called hostile intent available at a river themed online bookseller near you uh, is um, (laughs) uh, is one which tries to generate lessons so it tries to identify what we can learn from that period
0: of history which is what generally most academic historians are trying to do at some level or another sorry what we could learn from that period of history the 60s and 70s or what they could have learned
2: well what we can learn now about intelligence operations Um, And intelligence analysis based on that period. So what, you know, can you take a specific case and learn general lessons from it? Can you generate enduring lessons from very specific cases in history? And that's really the fundamental question that underlies any after action reporting any lessons learned process, and history in general is what Can I generate general
0: information from specific cases? Got it. Um, And we'll come on to that in a second. So what do you do at the moment? What's your main thing right now? Uh, The the day job is
2: um, senior lecturer at Brunel University. And then I have uh, a sideline
0: in uniform for the uh for the British government. Okay. Okay. Uh I mean you guys are probably burning to ask some questions but let's just go straight to the question that you've asked yourself there is can we learn um something general from something specific? Um can we?
2: Uh yes but with difficulty and not that well. I think is the um is is the is the overarching um take on it. Um there are you know there are a whole well, there's a couple of different branches you can go down here. One is the, the, the problem of, of constructing history. So there's the, the problems that exist in what you generate and call history. What that's derived from, the problems of determining causation, the problems of perspective and the perspective of the history writer, the problems of evidence. Um, there's also then problems in the usage of, of history. Uh, How public figures, especially um, uh, government officers uh, in this instance, is what I would focus on, make use of history in decision making. And then you can also go down the branch of how you can, uh, you know, can institutions and governments actually learn from history? Uh, Can, which is a more fundamental question, can government institutions actually learn using air quotes? Mm. Um, So uh, defaulting back to that first one, which is the problems of constructing. Um, there is the the problem, which is a general one, which guys like Thucydides and Herodotus even acknowledged, which is that uh, history is uh, has to be, by necessity, an abstraction, a simplification. Um, the analogy I use a lot with my students is history uh, has to be at scale because a one-to-one scale map of the world is useless. Uh, it doesn't help you n- negotiate the world. Uh, history ultimately is presented as narrative. We... we pick up a book, we read it from the front to the back. Uh, That gives an illusion of um, cause-effect, cause-effect, of linearity, which doesn't exist in real life. Real life moving forward is chaotic. We happen to go left instead of right. We happen to go up instead of down. But when we write history, we turn that into a single linear pathway. And that uh, eclipses a lot of complexity, nuance, uh, happenstance, chance, uh, and and seems to give them a an interconnected meaning which they may not possess in the first instance,
0: which then sort of leads us to a false um, conclusion that we could learn from something. Then, right? Yeah,
2: we, we identify a cause and we say that caused this, but we don't necessarily know that that caused this. Uh, we may view that particular event as a, a number of one of a number of causes which led to a, an outcome um so for instance the great the, the great historical question is what caused the first world war mm. well uh, it's very difficult to begin to say what caused the first world war there is uh a, 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 an, a, an almost infinite number of things you could start bringing up you could talk about industrialization you could talk about uh you could talk about in- increase in population
1: you could talk about the scramble for africa and ultimately you might you might just want to say what caused the First World War was just, you know, the day before the First World War and everything that was going on that day, and that probably is that might be the most complete answer, uh, but it's but it's not useful, like you were saying, you know, like what we want is an abstraction.
2: Yeah, there's a, a nice um, example of this, um, which uh, hopefully uh, I remember correctly, which is um, General Louis Mackenzie, who was the Canadian commander in Sarajevo uh, during the um, Bosnian War and the, the siege of Sarajevo. And a French politician, I think it might have been Chirac, flew in, and there was some sniper fire, and they jumped under an armored vehicle. And Chirac turned to Louis Mackenzie and said, "Who started this? Uh, who started this shooting?" But Mackenzie's answer, I think, is is the best, which he says, uh, "Some asshole five hundred years ago." <laughs> um, uh, so proximate versus ultimate causes of events.
1: Yeah, a foreign leader getting killed in Sarajevo wouldn't have been good either for all sorts of reasons.
2: <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's a, a, you know a good point to say you know in terms of satisfying our desire to understand what unleashed a particular cause of events we might say yeah it was that assassination but that assassination also has precursor events which also have significance so that is a, a, a decision of the historian what do i determine is sufficiently far back to ascribe uh, as a cause um, or do i need to go back further how far how many antecedents do i do i give Um, The other problem in that, of course, is is selection of evidence. So historians tend, although that has changed over the last few years, tend to default to documentary history, especially when writing about um, government events. You have a problem because uh, while bureaucracies are ultimately record-keeping machines, that's a key function of of bureaucracy, not everything is kept. So there's, imagine a series of concentric circles getting from big to small, that there's everything that's possible to know about an event. There's everything that's remembered. Uh, uh wrong. Everything that's observed. Of, of all that. Everything that's remembered of all that. Everything that is recorded of all that. Everything that is archived of all that. Everything then the historian has access to later. Everything the historian actually accesses. And then everything the historian actually uses. And that last bit everything the historian actually uses is a very small proportion of of what's
1: known and the filtering process is actually correlated with what ends up in that filter you know so it's not just you don't just get a random sample of things there's a specific process which means that you're going to end up with only a certain kind of information which is probably going to be misleading in summary
2: and there's bias at every single um, stretch of that a good example is a colleague of mine matthew seligman at brunel he uh, was looking at their naval archives and he saw a box marked for destruction, a series of boxes. And he asked, what are, what are those about? Uh, the historian, the archivist said, well, those are medical records of every naval surgeon on every ship in the Royal Navy in the Atlantic in the Second World War. Mm. And it was marked for destruction because nobody thought that kind of medical notes would be wow. useful or interesting. Matthew went into that and he finds all sorts of incredible records like the Royal Navy's semi-official view of drunkenness of homosexuality, of, so things that weren't of concern or they maybe they wanted to hide in the 1940s because they deemed socially to be embarrassing, were deemed for destruction. Actually today we would view those as incredibly interesting and and, and perhaps very important for for constructing history. So there's bias at every step of what gets recorded. You think also like, what are the things that you said when you were in government in conversations with people that you would never want to record, right? And how much of that happens in the decision-making process? Mm-hmm. which we never record. Mm-hmm.
3: Peter? So in a world where we're recording more and more, arguably we record nearly everything, um, what are, what do you see are the future problems for historians? I mean, I can see uh, that there's potentially way too much data to process and to trawl through for people like you in the future. Uh, and the problem historians will face is not that there's no data, but there's just way too much.
2: Yeah, um, that one-to-one scale map of the world when you have... All available information, uh, what do you use, and how do you select it, which would shift the bias from whereas before it might have rested with archivists and it might have rested with uh, secretaries and that which was recorded and that which wasn 't if everything is recorded, then the bias comes into how the 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 analyst how the historian selects evidence, how he selects it, what he
1: yeah, what I think we used. actually did a podcast about digital history and what was being uh, what was being recorded, and I think that one thing I remember from doing the numbers was that. Uh, a much higher percentage of data uh, than ever before is being lost, but that, that that was being more than offset by the enormous amount that we're creating. So there, there'll still be a lot more data, but it's certainly not like it's not like we're capturing everything. If you look at the what's on the Internet Archive, it's it's a tiny percentage of what's actually being created. Um, but anyway, I think I'm kind of interested in just getting back to the issue of um let's just assume for a minute that we do have an idea of what happened of you know what the facts were. Uh, even though we know we know there's lots of problems about actually reconstructing what events actually occurred. But let's assume that we've got that solved. We have a good understanding of a certain period like, you know, the French Revolution and all the events that led up to it and so on. And it's a good enough understanding to be able to pull together some lessons from it and to understand what chains of events were related to other chains of events and so on. The, so the question is, under what circumstance is knowing all that going to be useful now, right? No, you, so if we know all that, what's it going to tell us? And how do we exploit that knowledge are, so we can make better decisions now?
2: Are you specifically asking about old history or history in general?
1: Yeah, when does old start? Well, that's Surely a, that's it's, a, it's a continuum. And how do we exploit that knowledge so that we can make better decisions now?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, there, there is a there is already a bias amongst decision makers for... Um, lived or experienced history Mm. so decision makers will default to the things that they remember yeah um and there are a few sort of biases in that uh, or problems in that usage which i'd like to get to to later but specifically people tend to 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 look at um at lived experience which is problematic because they presume that lived experience gives you um an edge or advantage over read or recorded history Mm. that's not necessarily true so you have um famous uh historians or historiographers like gaddis who talk about the landscape of history so the historian has a particular advantage over the observer of actual events so the observer of actual events is limited to his own sensory input so what he hears sees and and recalls and there are already filters in that the historian has the advantage of of sitting almost godlike over uh over over time can can move back and forth, can change perspective, can look at different points of view, and therefore can construct interesting things. Um, and all of those things help that what you know Machiavelli described as the the, the kind of vicarious learning, the thing that you might not be able to. Um, you know, this is the whole point of of the Prince: is here's some mistakes people made before. Pay attention to those. So computers. he's done the history. Here are the lessons. Here's the lessons. Yeah, well, here are some lessons, and you know guys like Machiavelli. You know, he states that if if you're not going to uh, get it quite right, you can't generate rules that work in every situation. But you can. He called it get the odor of it, um, mm-hmm. which 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 is interesting. So the example and I think we've discussed this before in other cases. It's if you're looking at, for instance, what Russia is going to do next, or or what is Russia thinking about doing. We in the West have a very particular perspective, which is very new we 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 think we are on this is one of the faults i we think we're the new men mm. we've trans we've 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 gone past uh past things we're in this new space where we're, we're creating our own story well the russians have a, uh, a view of life which is much more rooted in their deep history uh, they have a and whether that is constructed in a modern era or whether that's real it's a case that they pay more attention to their to their older history so when we were talking about for instance um Uh, when people were wondering, what's Russia going to do vis-a-vis the color revolution in Ukraine, the Maidan? There were people saying, well, nothing, because if you look at Russia today, it's ruled by the oligarchs. The oligarchs are all important. They make money, and the financial consequences of of them making a move in the Ukraine are, are catastrophic. Another view would say, well, actually, Russia cares an awful lot about its deep history. Russia as a modern state came out of The Kievan state, a thousand years ago, it was Christianized in the Crimea. There is a a history going back from that thousand year period to today where Russia values the Crimea. That's important insofar as it constructs a strategic meaning for a place, for a state like Russia. So knowing the ancient history, well, it's not going to tell you how certain things are going to happen it's going to tell you that this is something that the Russians care you about. May you may have put might, something down which is a sli-
1: uh, I think it's, it's almost like what you're saying is that in order to have a model of Russia now, we need to know what historical beliefs the Russians have now. And it's a contingent fact that, let's say, the Russians have a certain understanding of history which affects their decisions. Now, that's, that's true of Russia now. It may not be the case that I personally need, I need to go and understand the history of the Kievan Rus or whatever to help me understand what the Russians are going to do. Uh, I just need to find out what the Russians believe were the case. And I think that's a bit different to me saying you know well we're in a brexit type situation we've got to make some rules about brexit we've got to think what's going to happen well it's a bit like you know the american war of independence or it's a bit like you when the irish free state came about or you know looking for some other historical example that gives us some guidance as to what the good and bad things would be to do and that's what I've got in mind, I think, is sort of not, not so much understanding what do others believe about history, but what historical examples are actually useful to us now. And you know, how do you know if you've picked the right one?
2: Right. So, I mean, first of all, I'd say that you're an analyst. You've been an analyst. You understand that there's a difference between generating a causal understanding of, of a model or an event and, and giving someone else a causal explanation of it. How you come to an understanding is not necessarily how you... Deliver that understanding to uh, uh, to somebody else. Um, so you may not, I may not want to walk into a, a room to brief a general and start with uh, my first event on the list being the Christianization of the Rus uh, in 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 eight fifty eight. But that's something that I have brought into the to my model of, of of understanding. Now, where that becomes useful is the the habit of policymakers, especially and and those who have fairly non professional understandings of history tend to work by generating analogy yeah and analogy is a simplification of a simplification that's generally what we we construct so uh uh, the uh, something that's often used as an example in this is the analogies used during the cuban missile crisis by jfk's government and we talk about that model because we have all the recordings of of XCOM. so we we heard everything they said in their decision making and one of the things that was said very early on is uh this is like Pearl Harbor. Right. And so that was an an analogy
1: which which actually wasn't a good fit. Uh, Here's my question. So even though the way that we tend to talk about reasoning by analogy is almost to dismiss it, I think on a more fundamental level, all reasoning is really reasoning by analogy. Um, You know, when we're sort of making a model of a certain system or or anything, what we're saying is that past examples of those types of systems have behaved in a certain way. So therefore, we should assume that they'll continue to behave in the same way. Uh, I mean, th- that's how we learn, you know, the persistence of types of behavior is how we learn about anything. Um, the question here, and just like what you're alluding to, is how do you know which is the right example? So um, when we were looking at should we invade Iraq in 2003, there was a kind of battle between uh, the, people saying, um, no, be like the people who were saying, no, this is going to be like Vietnam again. And the people who are saying, no, this is going to be more like the liberation of Nazi Germany. And in a sense, both of those are right in terms of, you know, there are certain features of those things which were true of the Iraq war. Um, uh, But actually, you know, what would have been the right approach? Uh, Is it are we in some way trying to find the historical example, which most approximates the thing we're looking at here? Or is it about saying, well, everything's a bit relevant, but what we need to do is try and work out how relevant it is. um, And what should that process be um, where we make that decision? Or is that totally the wrong question? I mean, should we be should it be something totally different
2: analogy is the critical tool that that most people use because that's how how we think it's rather more determining what the right analogy is and getting the best fit analogy uh, and then not using that beyond its utility the um neustadt and may who are two american uh, guys at kennedy school of government talked about always working out uh the first question is what's the story until now so f- the the policymaker needs to uh, not just cherry pick uh, analogies which seem to suit, which is is what people will tend to do, but to situate yourself within a story. Um, so you're looking at what's the story up until now, where do I sit, and what will this look like as we go forward? So what's my part in this unfolding, uh, in this unfolding story? Not viewing yourself as the ultimate result of history, which is a bit it was just an egoist fallacy, which which creeps in a lot, but as part of so what's the story until now and therefore i can use that if i construct that story i can better find uh, and and stretch it into the future rather than than just into the past i can help pick the right um, models for particular bits of understanding uh, i can help generate um, a, uh, a framework in which i can hang uh, the right analogies in the right order to help get through different parts of a problem but to simplify and say this problem is just like that problem uh is is not or is rarely a safe bet in history and i think it's you know the the paraphrase of the santayana quote now history doesn't repeat itself
0: but it sure does rhyme um so i want to ask is um especially given that we talk about analysis and decision making that's what we're here for we've talked a lot about analysis at the moment um something you talked about at the beginning as well as about institutions is i was just wondering i'm sure there are mechanisms for how this kind of analysis is brought into decision making um but i was just wondering um how what trends there might be in that or how that might be changing at the moment of 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 yeah how how you bring in historical intelligence analysis into policy making into decision making now um is that is there a trend is that changing how do governments people you how do governments uh use people like you now that's a good uh
2: question there's there's two sort of branches you could go down there one is is um, after action reporting or lessons learning. So for instance, something like the Butler inquiry or the Chilcot inquiry, where you look at a disaster and say, right, what can we learn from that disaster? What can we change? How can we improve? And then the other side is is how you use history in, in current decision-making. I would tend to argue that the role of history in current decision-making would tend to be in the analytical space rather than in the necessarily in the policy-determining space. Um, that the the people doing the analytical groundwork are the ones who who need to know the history and need to draw in the models, and that should then be presented depending on the character, because how you present information to policymakers depends ultimately on the character and the background and the intelligence of the of the decision maker. But in in terms of policy advice, rather than in in raw history, I think giving history to some raw history to some people, one they don't have time to read it or they won't have time to digest it, but it it would be like giving unprocessed
1: uh collection material also people will always look for a reason why like this particular analogy doesn't fit and will yep. always they'll always find one so you know, this time you can imagine Hitler saying, yeah. well, this time I know Napoleon didn't manage to knock out Russia, but we will because we've got tanks and Napoleon only had horses. And that's a major difference. Um, but it's it's interesting what Chris was just saying. It makes me think that even though there's a there's sort of a big methodological division between the methods of history and the methods of, you know, data analysis. And it's really I think it's exactly the same thing, which is how do you use data to inform decisions at a strategic level? Um because you use the, well, you use the data in your analysis uh, and I I, I would say it's sort of history is just another word for data. It's things that happened in the past that we know about. Um, and, you know, maybe historical data comes in a different form and it's not as well structured as, you know, sort of what we might think of as data. Um, but then you effectively use that data to build models and it's those models that you use to inform decisions. So, um, I mean, in, in Christian's terms, the history, and in my terms, the data, is kind of suffused within the model. It's embedded in the model that you have of the world. So things like, you know, you look at economic policy today and the way that economic policy is made, and it takes into account 2008. It takes into account the Great Depression. It takes into account, you know, the stagflation of the 70s. So it takes into account all of the things that we've learned up till now, but it doesn't mean that any of the people making policy have to know that stuff. They don't. The fact that we have an independent Bank of England, um, and the reason we set that up in the first place is because we had so many booms and busts when the government had control over over the interest rate, but but now that's baked in. Uh, no, no one needs to know why we have an independent bank of england as long as the history
0: is is the rationale for having having done it that way um before we continue we're close to be needing to wrap up there i've got one question that i want to ask christian but i just wanted to ask with, to see if you've got anything you want to ask or if indeed christian if there's anything you want to add at the moment
3: uh we'll go with peter first so in in very general terms thinking about the progress human race has made and i mean progress in a stephen pinker sense that we have much less violence than we've ever had.
2: See, uh, yeah, I would, I, I dispute Pinker, but go on.
3: We're, we're better off now than we were a hundred years ago, and the people a hundred years ago were better off than the people two hundred years ago. It, you know, everything now is rosy compared to how it's been. Uh, how much of this general progress would you ascribe to be, us being thinking, planning beings who are able to learn from what we've got wrong in the past? Uh, and uh, and corrected our behavior as a result. And how much would you uh, ascribe to the just general general technological process that that we've made? Which do you think is the, the the stronger driver for change?
2: Yeah, I mean, we human societies learn in in after a fashion. So as 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 Nick said, we try to bake in to the design of our societies and our cultures memory uh, and 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 knowledge but for everything we fix, we often break a, another thing. So it's, and, and here we have a problem of historical perspective. You're viewing the world as as, as a pleasant place to be um, because you live in a relatively very pleasant part of it. Um, if you were in the middle, in fact, in many places in the Middle East or sub-Saharan Africa right now, you, you may not have such a rosy view um, of the world. Um, the other problem with that view of of tending to say that that we are inevitably progressing as as a species and and viewing that progression that upward progression as inevitable is that it excludes um the 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 very frequent um you know if you look at history civilizations are like a tetherball and they they keep going up as long as someone keeps hitting them up as soon as, soon as you stop hitting them up they tend to to spin down so we have over the last 5,000 years of recorded history, lots of cases of very well-developed civilizations. Yeah, this
1: time we've got it right. Yeah. I'm sure sure they all say we've learned from those disasters.
2: And and that's exactly what, you know, so you talk about the economics. This is when we have um, uh, the the prime minister saying we've banished boom and bust. We've, and this is the the big problem that I I, I mentioned earlier. I call New Man theorem. So yes, there's all this history that came before, but we've surpassed that now. We are the new men. None of the lessons of the past. This time is different. This time is different. And so every time I hear someone say, oh, but in our ever increasingly complex world, I reach for my revolver because that is code for history doesn't matter now. Mm. Right. We've we've gone past that. And that tends to especially, we, we tend to especially as, as our society perhaps focus on technological advancement and, and technology as overweighing other aspects of of our society so we we say well there's the internet and there's this connectivity and there's big data so all these past lessons don't matter because those existed those are derived from times where we didn't have all those things therefore that past history doesn't matter so in military history we have all sorts of people saying no war is no longer Clausewitzian. it's no longer determined by chance violence and uh, and reason it's something different now because insert technological yeah. Um, and and that and that really gets me worried because that's that sets you up for that fall off that cliff.
1: I just want to add that from my it's my experience in the MOD is that um, well, it's similar to what Chris was talking about. Everyone everyone thinks that people are fighting the last war. And I don't think that's quite right. Um, I think the problem is that everyone sort of almost overcompensates for the tendency to fight the last war. Everyone thinks they're taking into account the historical important lessons. That's what everyone in the MOD thinks. OK, well, we know that war's changed now. We're not going to fight, you know, we're not going to fight as if it's the invasion of Iraq. Now it's going to be more like Afghanistan and it's all war among the people now. And then, of course, the next one is going to be different again. And if you look at the data on the nature of conflict, it is more or less random. There's There's very little trend in terms of the, you know, things like the asymmetry between the forces, the number of casualties, the le- the length of the particular conflicts and, and all of these things, the things that the UK have got involved in. There actually isn't much of a long term trend. And yet people can't help looking for one. And, you know, if you're a retired general, you've got to write a book about that trend. And then that gets on the reading list at Sandhurst. And ev- <laughs> then everyone's saying, well, this is what it's all about now. And, and none of that is people fighting the last war. It's people trying to get better. But, uh, you know, I don't feel like we'll never get it right.
0: Yeah. Christian? Oh, it just There's
2: there's problems in there, too, is, is, is it's easier to learn from defeats and failures than it is from successes. Um, the example I like to trot out from this is the end of the First World War. So at the end of the First World War, afterward, and everyone's sort of licking their wounds, the Germans looked at the last hundred days of the First World War and said, we were beaten because of tanks and combined arms, uh, uh, and, and that's what we need to do. So the next war is about tanks and combined arms. And that's the war we want to fight, a war of movement, a war of hmm. uh, what w- we ended up calling blitzkrieg, but to the Germans never really used that word. And if you look at the way the West learned from the First World War, we looked at it and we said, the Somme. Nailed it. You know, mm. We said, you know, the psalm that was a disaster. We never, we never want to do that again. again. Uh, and so they started focusing on defensive structures they started focusing on, and that 's what led to the mentality the Maginot
1: line the Maginot, mentality yeah, in the, yeah in the, we were getting better at what the Germans were doing well, and they were getting better at what we do well
2: precisely and so and and but that feeds into how you know this is the lessons learned thing is first of all, can institutions like governments learn well they 're not they 're not single things they 're not a, a single living being they 're collections of of human beings with with each their own, but also we tend to find in, in government when we when we try and learn is governments are bureaucracies, bureaucracies tend to find things that they can fix bureaucratically. Uh, so we, we may identify a lesson, presume that we've got the perspective right, and we, we have learned the right lesson. What do you actually change in government? Well, governments, you know, it's the hammer nail analogy, we always look to improve, we're the hammer, we we want to look to improve the nail and, uh, and, and the face of the hammer. But there may be all sorts of other things
3: that we're not dealing with. Well, I, I, Nick and I have actually got direct experience of this. And there's a bit of a running joke between us that when, whenever government's got a problem or they want to fix something, what they do is stand up a new team because it's more or less the only thing that they can do. Uh, it's the only lever they've got to pull in, 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 is their own internal structure.
2: And so when we, f- when we form history, we often do it with that purpose of finding the thing that the institution does mm. and doing that more so th- that 's the the perspective problem and, and 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 you know how we actually do anything, so can governments learn and and use that in decision making yeah but that 's really hard to do right I
1: think the answer is there probably isn 't a formula, and you know we 'll never fix this problem Fraser, you 're trying to wind up
0: well i 'm not trying to wind up because actually because that 's almost that 's It was almost a nice summing up, rounding off. However, there's something I want to ask quickly, okay? Now, I know we're talking about learning from history, and and so I've got a question for you. It doesn't have to be about learning. But um, as a military military historian, um, you must have vast knowledge of all sorts of uh, military history. Um, What's your favourite... uh, military historical event or favorite battle it doesn't have to be one that's uh where we can learn something or not but you must have a favorite there yeah uh, if, if, if 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 that's not bad taste talking about battles and having a favorite one but anyway nick may will be totally unsurprised to hear this is a very obscure
2: um uh, uh bit of history which is, is it the byzantines again it is the byzantines yeah and it's uh called the battle of lalakeon i'm not uh, familiar with this uh, it happened in the uh, uh 838 and a it's it's the last major raid from the arabs into the byzantine empire and it's remarkable because it shows a shift in um into uh, from one style of fighting to another style of fighting so previous to this point the byzantines had been fighting on the defensive for about 200 years and had developed a very elaborate structure for what we call um elastic defense so allowing the air braids to come in tracking them and then trying to get them on the way out when they were tired and laden down with booty and everything like that and tired and but what happened in this case is the raid went in uh, the elastic defense met it but then the emperor decided that well since they had settled things on the west they were going to go after this this arab raid and uh and it, it's hard to imagine in terms of modern scale but the Byzantines marshaled something like a 50,000-man army from three different places, marched it over the Anatolian plateau in the summertime, three different armies from three different places, and met in one place on one day to surround the the small, much smaller Arab raid and destroy it. And that is a remarkable thing when you don't have modern te- communications technology when you don't have modern road infrastructure when you don't have you don't even have, you don't, don't maps don't exist the the modern two-dimensional map is not a common thing at this period of time and they somehow managed to get three different armies in three different places to march for weeks and weeks and even to feed an army of that size for that period of time um uh, and then get them all in one place to fight a battle now the reason i like this so much is because we tend to view we try to 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 think that we've we've solved all the problems we've we've got all these modern structures we are capable of doing things that the ancients were not capable of doing and to that i say because here you have 1200 years ago um a a state which is capable of marshalling huge amounts of force over great distance with great complexity uh, and synchronicity to then to deliver focused violence, which is is what we do, is what militaries are for, and here we have someone so long ago doing it. So I think it's a nice, it's a humbling model to me to look at that and go that so long ago you can, you can see these problems and how they and how they
0: solve them. Nice, that was nice. That was very educational. Actually, I like that. That was great. Um, well, look, chaps, we're going to stop there. Um, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, so we'll wind up there. Um, so thank you as always to listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast I'm Fraser McGregor. we've been here with Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights but most of all um, a special thank you to our guest this week to Christian Gustafsson thank you so much for being here thank you really enjoyed it hope you enjoyed it um, thanks one and all goodbye <laughs>